stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill. We have a full house here today. We have all our panelists here. Laura Modlin on mic 2 and Chris Ferrio on mic 3. They're going to be uh, doing wonderful stuff for us during the show. It's, it's <laughs> wonderful? Wonderful. Uh-oh. It's a wonderful thing happening here. Uh, no D in that word, by the way. It's just wonderful. <laughs> and uh, by the way, um, I want to also mention, of course, that Steve Mono is with us from Massaro Farm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Steve, hello. Hello. Glad to be with you. <laughs> yeah, great. Hey, Steve. <clears throat> Steve. Hey, Steve. Hi there. Are you um, on the launch pad ready to go off on an <laughs> adventure someplace? Uh, how do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you've been sending out these mysterious emails saying that you're going to be unreachable for a period of time. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I did get away from the farm for a little bit, but I am back. Oh, okay. Uh, and and it's, yeah, so it's, it's you know another sixty degree day in February here, and uh, <laughs> you know I spent spent some time watering the, in our in our tunnels today to make sure our plants there don't dry out. I see. I see. Yeah, sixty degrees. Indeed, I stepped out of the house today, and it was like, oh my god! I couldn't. I was, thought I was. I was in Mexico. Now I think you were in Mexico, right, Steve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, a little bit of Mexico here in Connecticut today. And uh, why is my my earphones are not quite right? Let me see if I. Can. You know, um, I just want to butt in here, uh, Steve. I um. It was, it's so warm today. I'm tempted to dig in my garden, but I know it's only February, so I'm not. I'm not going to do it. But I keep like looking for the garlic to pop up through the leaves in my garden. You got to control yourself. <laughs> yes, I mean it's it's likely that the garlic has popped up. I haven't gone to look at ours yet, but um, and it's okay if they if they do. I mean, you know, we get certainly a little worried that they might get exposed. Uh, you know, to some extreme cold, but the garlic is tough and should be able to handle it. Um, you know, we are bound to have some colder days in, in March and April, at least, you know, that that's what uh, history suggests, even with, uh, you know, some warm days like this and an abnormal month of February overall, we're, we're still likely to have some cold, but I think our, our garlic hopefully can handle whatever cold comes comes its way. 
All right, and I just want to mention that we uh, have a special guest today coming in a little bit after uh, the quarter hour, and that would be Hector Geraldo, who is the co-founder of Seamaran Farmstead, which is located in Danbury, Connecticut. He is a, a farmer of color, so to speak, a black Latino farmer who is uh, has a very interesting project that he's going to talk about. We're we're doing this in conjunction with Black History Month, which we've been celebrating all month here at PKN with incredible programming indoors and outdoors. Many things happening, including the um, fantastic, let me just get the card here, the Bill T. Jones uh, dance performance, which will be happening at the Quick Center on February 25th, 7.30 p.m., so call WPKN or the Quick Center to uh, hook yourself up for that. That's a very special event. Incredible. It will benefit uh, WPKN, and it will also give you a truly uh, remarkable cultural evening. All right, but we are going to do our interview with Hector Geraldo, also known as Freedom. We're going to find out where he got that nickname. And it's a, he's a fascinating guy, and I spoke to him yesterday. We're going to speak to him today on the air live at about 12.20. If we can squeeze him, our, all our features in before then. Yeah. Well, let's go directly to Laura Modlin with a, her special report. Thanks, Richard. Well, yeah. I, I wanted just to mention first that since the last show, we've gained 32 minutes of light. No. Isn't that amazing? Two weeks. We have 32 minutes more of light. <laughs> Not only that, but remember last time we noticed the disparity that the the sunrise coming sooner was slower than the sun? Well, it's caught up now, and they're only about four minutes apart in terms of extra light. So, Wait, can, you, can you run that bias again one more time? Okay. So the morning sunrise was coming later than... Was slower to be earlier than <laughs> the sunset right. was quicker to be later. Gotcha. Okay. okay. And since then, now it's there's only about four minutes in terms of difference between the, in the last two weeks. Four minutes between sunrise and sunset's adjustment. And um, so now, today, we have 10 hours and 42 minutes of light. What, what is the sunset time? 528. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, and then, of course, we're going we're coming up in March on the 20th, the, the spring vernal equinox. It'll be equal day and night uh -huh. on the 20th. And then on the 20th, on the 12th, though, before then, we switch to daylight savings time. Oh, um, yeah. Do you like daylight savings time? Um, you know, it's like they've tried to pass legislation in our federal government, and I, I don't know what I prefer, um, standard time or daylight saving time. I, I'm not sure. We, I mean, should, we should check in with Steve on that because I think the farmers have, have a big uh, stake in this one. Yeah. Personally, I prefer standard time just because. Well, like let's see what Steve thinks. What does Steve think? Yeah. 
Well, I think I, I think there may be a misconception that that farmers are responsible for the, the <laughs> clock changing, or that we want the clock to change. And as a, a parent of two young children, you know, I can say that the, the changing of the clock does not help our rhythms uh, in in the house or on the farm. So, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not promoting one or the other, but I think keeping you know sticking with one might be better, at least for this farmer um, and and farm family. But I, I think you know yeah. Yeah, there's some history that says maybe uh, farmers wanted this, but I, I don't think that's the case any anymore, anyhow. So um, I will, you know, not speak on behalf of all farmers, but <laughs> I would like to say if we could keep one time, that that might be preferred. All right, because really, that you don't change the sun, you just change the clock. <laughs> exactly. Right yeah. now, you're, this is another more breaking news here. Okay, yeah. from Laura Modlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. This is very... Well, okay, so not only that, I want to move on to the moon, which the new moon is this coming Monday, which is President's Day. What is a new moon? A new moon, it's it's yeah. it's not actually brand new moon. It's the same moon that's always there. But <laughs> More breaking news. <laughs> right? I know I'm educating to you today. Um, it, the new moon is when the moon is between the sun and the earth in its orbit. So the sun is illuminating the side of the moon facing away from the earth. So it's lined up at, for new moons, earth, moon, sun. What does it look like in the sky? It looks dark. It's totally yeah. dark. It's That's totally pretty, dark. Yeah. But you can see it. You can, you can, you can sort of see the outline mm. of it, right. yeah. okay. Um, but so we're going to have um, the new moon on Monday and it's going to so it's it starts the new cycle which become when the moon and the moon becomes full on March 7th and that's the worm moon um, so and it's the final it's the final moon cycle of the winter season the worm moon that's the worm moon and we'll have more information on the name at the next show okay. <laughs> when we're closer <laughs> yeah. to the full moon just not, to get people to tune in you know yeah exactly we're <laughs> going to keep people on tenter hooks waiting for that information uh, anything else Laura from you yeah I wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, someone who Barack Obama called an American hero, um, but she could neither read or write and was born the fifth of nine children um, for a family of slaves in Maryland in the early 1820s. And, but she could read the sky and she understood botany, wildlife, astronomy, and geography. And these abilities were pivotal in her escape from slavery up to Pennsylvania. Um, Harriet Tubman, um, like freedom so much, she wanted to share it with family and friends and made 13 dangerous journeys back down south in the mid-1800s to rescue them. And at that time, a lucrative business was capturing and returning the escaped slaves. So Harriet often led the way on their trips at night. Um, so she became a conductor or guide on the Underground Railroad, which was a cloaked network of people, places, and um, aid to lead to freedom. Um so she she really excelled at being a naturalist, and because of her knowledge of the natural world, she was able to um, create um, signals um, it, like the hoot of owls to signal whether or not it was safe to move out of hiding, and she understood plants and provided food and medicine and was a, was guided them by the North Star. So... Um, it just, I think, shows a way that 
our disconnection from um, nature has led to certain things that we just couldn't do now that she could do then. So nice report there. Uh, consistent with our theme of Black History Month this exactly. here at WPKN. And let's turn to Steve Munno and get uh, any perspective from him from the farm. Well, you know, coming up uh, next week uh, here and throughout the country, it is National CSA Week. CSA, so this is week. yes. Yeah, so that's our community-supported agriculture, and, um, you know, that's something that we offer here at Masaro and lots of uh, farms throughout uh, the country and around the world offer as a way to get their uh, produce or, you know, eggs or meat or fruit, uh, you know, to, to customers. And it's become a sort of a, a, a marketing and sales push this week because years ago, uh, the small farm network and the now, which is now sort of the CSA innovation network sort of identified late February as, um, as a big period where people, particularly in the South and West, start purchasing their CSAs. And so, and for us, it's a good time, too, because we really want to have our CSA sold before we're, we're in the height of the season. You know, we're about to get going with seeding in our greenhouse next week with things like onions and kale and uh, broccoli and such and cabbage for the spring Um so, you know, in order to have the funds, the whole idea of the CSA is people are paying up front for, for stuff that they'll get throughout the season. They're buying into the farm. You know, people are making a relationship with their, their local farm. Uh, they become members in exchange for, you know, the, the harvest of the season. And uh, this is a great time to buy in. So we're going to start promoting that over the weekend. But I, I wanted to mention it now because it's also important as part of Black History Month to acknowledge the roots of the CSA. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of times these these stories don't get told appropriately and we leave out, um, you know, the, the history of, of people who started these, these types of programs. And, you know, when people think CSA, they might not think of, um, you know, the black farmers who started these programs uh, in the South years ago. So uh, I wanted to make sure we, we mentioned that, you know, uh, Booker T. Watley, who is a black author and um Farmer, horticulturist, and professor at uh, Tuskegee University in Alabama. He was one of the one of the sort of founders of this CSA idea. He didn't call it that; they called it the Clientele Membership Club, and that's where you know sort of same idea as our modern CSA club members paid a fee upfront so they could do a pick your own all season long on a farm. So people didn't have their own farm; they would pay in. Uh, you know, to, to pick their own, but they were paying the farmers to pay for the seed and the equipment, the fertilizer and all the work that they do. And then they would come and they could pick their own, you know, at that farm. So that that is kind of uh, one of the origins of this CSA idea that's often left out of the story. So I think, you know, as part of Black History Month, sort of lifting that story up and acknowledging that it's, it, you know, it's not the handful of farms in New England that have been doing it for 30 plus years now that this has a, a, a history that goes back, you know, into the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, with starting with Booker T. Watley there, and of course, it does exist across the across the world as well. CSAs have taken off and have taken many different forms. And I would say, you know, one of the important things now is to you know understand what kind of CSA you're joining if you're going to join a CSA, because lots of the the bigger farms out there and bigger corporations have used the CSA model as another way to market, and it and it's really kind of clouded the idea of. Uh, you know, 
members of the community supporting a local farm in their community, you know, and now you can buy a sort of subscription to a bigger farm and, and have it shipped to you or pick it up. And it, you're, it's sort of lost that connection to a, to a, a small farm and you, you're no longer supporting a small farm in your community. If you're sort of buying a, uh, you know, an aggregated box from a big supplier and you don't know where the stuff is coming from. So I, I would say, you know, Think about, you know, buying local, knowing your farm, um, you know, you get an opportunity to try new things, new whether it's vegetables or fruit. Um, there's also CSAs for fish and shellfish. There's lots of ways, you know, in and around Connecticut to get engaged with the CSA. But I would say one of the key things I would look for and suggest looking for is uh, making that connection with the farm or the producer. So you know who it's coming from. Uh, if you know who it's coming from, then you probably are supporting, you know, a real local farm and a real local CSA as opposed to something uh, larger and more corporate that's sort of taken this model to their own means. Uh, mm. So so next week, all week, we're, we're, you'll, we'll be advertising it. And, uh, you know, it's a great time to help, you know, get money to the, to the farms and producers early in the season so that they've got what they need to do the production and pay their staff and, you know, get all their supplies uh, and, and set up for a successful year ahead. Can you give us a clue as to how, to, like, are most of those large corporate uh, CSAs, uh, quote unquote, are they accessible mostly online or are, are they actually have farm stands set up? And, and the- I, you know, I think there's both. There are some, there's some corporate stuff where you can order, you know, the box of food that comes to you each week. And, and yeah. sometimes they'll, they'll do meal prep bits in it too. You know, and, and um, you know, the, they might be buying from some, some farms and regional farms, but then, you know, there's the, the benefit of buying directly from a farm is that, they're, you know, we're not losing dollars to uh, middlemen you know, yeah. middle, middle of, of yeah. some kind. But the other thing, you know, and I'm using corporate because that does exist out there, but there are also just some larger farms or some of the larger uh, vegetable farms and, and uh, orchards and such are, are using the CSA, you know, as another means of, of bringing in income at a time when they don't normally. So, you know, if you're a large orchard in New England, you're probably not selling a lot of your own product right now. So if you can get money in hand early by advertising a CSA where you sell some of your product and buy in other products from a regional market, you know, customers might be happy with that. But it's, it's not, it's not the, the sort of real idea of the CSA. And so that's where I'd be careful about, you know, if it's a, a, a real sort of larger farm uh, or organization that's promoting, you know, um, a CSA, they might, they might have their farm stand in their location. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not just online. There are some sort of large, larger farms that have, I think, distorted the idea of the CSA a little bit by what they offer. But, you know, I, I sort of like to support all of our, our local growers. There's lots of different ways to do it. I just think CSA has kind of been this this sort of special idea about supporting a farm in your community. Um, so it's the sales model that's been corrupted a little bit by some others. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, most CSAs I think you're going to find are, 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 you know, about supporting a local farm in your, in your community. So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, people can find that. There's, you know, the, the Connecticut NOFA website and map has a number of them listed. Um, so there's lots of ways to, f- to find it. And I think people will be hearing about it next week a lot with some, some advertising that we'll be putting out um, uh, across the country for National CSA Week. 
Sounds great. Can you give us a another little injection of about the NOFA conference, which is coming up in March? Just dates and uh, key uh, things that people yeah. should know. Absolutely. So the uh, Connecticut NOFA Winter Conference is going to be both online and in person this year. The, the last two years with the pandemic, we ran the conference exclusively online virtual workshops. But this year we're, we're able to bring sort of both together. So March 6th through 10th, that's sort of Monday through uh, Friday, there will be virtual workshops all, all week long. I think most of those workshops are at noon and three and seven each day. Um, and then March 11th, the Saturday, it's an in-person gathering and celebration uh, at Wesleyan University in Middletown. Uh, workshops all day long. Uh, we'll be honoring uh, Mike Nadu as the uh, recipient of the Bill Dusing uh, Organic Living on Earth Award. And we'll, we will have Leah Penniman as our keynote speaker. Uh, so we'd love for, to see you know, our community come back together in person as we haven't been able to gather the last couple of years um, in person Saturday, March 11th at, at Wesleyan University in Middletown. And of course, great to see everybody in the workshops uh, throughout the week in their little Zoom squares. Uh, love to see everyone there, too. Wonderful. Great. For the, we'll, we'll talk more about this. I think we have one more show, Laura, right before, yeah. before the conference. Yeah. Yeah. Right. On okay. March 2nd. Excellent. So we'll, we'll keep plugging it and uh, try to get everybody to show up there. All right. Well, now it is our pleasure to welcome a special guest today, Hector Geraldo, who is joining us from Danbury, Connecticut. Hector, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Really great to have you. Hector is a, uh, a.k.a. Freedom. <laughs> Interesting name there. Yes. We're going to find out about that. <laughs> um, but, uh, Hector, you, you, you're you a proprietor or a co-founder of the C. Maron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. C. Maron Farmstead. C. Maron Farmstead. Let me see if I can do that. Cimarron. Cimarron. I got it. Cimarron Farmstead. Yay. In Denver, you Canada. go. You got it. Okay. Yeah, those, those rolling R's are tough. I love them. Um, yeah, they are. So, uh, Hector, tell us what what's going on there. You you have this um, land, and uh, yes. what are you, what are you doing with it? And what? You, but actually, before we even get there, because your project is so interesting, but I do want to find out. What your connection is to the land? How did you get into farming? Tell us your story, a little bit about it. Okay, so um, thank you for having me again. Um, my name is Hector Gerardo. Um, I go by Freedom. Um, I'm a community activist first and foremost. Um, you know, my farming story it, um, comes from a long. It's a long story um, to get to the point where we are. Uh, to have three acres where we are farming many different crops uh, and we have some livestock going on. So me, I started uh, as, an, as an organizer uh, in this world, you know. So I'm from New York City. I'm an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. Uh, and in Dominican Republic, you know, everything is fresh. Everything, you know, food is, is always fresh. So coming over here was a culture shock in 1995. That's when I came to the United States. Um, it was a little bit of a culture shock, a, a little bit of a story that I tell people. When I came to the United States, there was a big snowstorm in 1995. I don't know if people remember the big snowstorm <laughs> that happened in the East Coast. 
um, that was my first introduction to the, the American lifestyle. I didn't know how cold it was um, until I got here, um, and I saw the snow. Um, and it's beautiful when it's coming down, but, you know, after a few days, you want it gone. Uh, so, yeah, so I came from the Dominican Republic, and, you know, everything over there is fresh. Um, all the products are fresh, so there's no such thing as organic because, you know, that label don't exist in our country because everything is, is grown freshly. So coming over here, I didn't, you know, everything is, is, everything is in abundance. Everything is, you know, more and more. The more you eat, the, the more food you prepare, um, the more you eat, the more you waste. Um, and that's what the United States, you know, I came here um, finding that out. Um, but I never was a farmer. You know, I always wanted to, you know, I was, I was complacent. So I always went to the supermarket. You know, I was like those people that thought that the food started at the supermarket. And I didn't really think about the journey and the hands that um, that took to to get that um, those vegetables um, to the supermarket. You know, I'm, I'm a community organizer. I go um, and I organize non-union workers. That's when I started um, in my early 20s. I, I was organizing non-union workers, organizing youth around um, um, police brutality and education. Um, and then I started my own nonprofit, you know, fast forwarding. Um, I started my own nonprofit working with young people around food insecurity um, in the Bronx. Uh, and we build um, community gardens. Uh, we help young people understand the um, food system, so we do a lot of training around food system and the and 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 systems of oppression of the United States. Um, but our angle is through food because we understand that every time we have an event with our young people, um, they don't show up if we don't have food. So we understand that food is a it's a big. Um, it's a big uh, uh, attraction for our young people. Um, so we decided to just, you know, teach young people how to cook and teach them how to grow their own food. Um, and then my wife, she had an opportunity to come to Connecticut um, and work for the AFT. So she works for the American Federation of Teachers. She's, she negotiates contracts um, um, for teachers in Connecticut. Um, so she got that job opportunity. We moved to Bethel. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Uh, you know, and we couldn't go out so much. We, you know, we couldn't, we wanted to, to buy some, we wanted to get fresh produce. Um, and, you know, for Mother's Day, she said she wanted a small garden. And then we built a garden out of broken um, uh, concrete block, concrete um, from my sidewalk that our neighbor gave us. Um, and, and before I even say that, like, you know, my introduction to farming really was my wife. She was, She's big in composting. So we live in, in New York City, um, and we were composting out of our, um, in our uh, um, fire escape. And that's how, you know, I hate composting. I hate the smell. Um, you know, when I first started dating her, every time, you know, we had an argument, in, you know, we, about the smell. I'm like, why do you want this, uh, um, this, this food in your, in, your, in your house when you can just throw it away? And now we are using that same that same um, compost. We are using it in our in our home, and that compost is about ten years old. Um, and now we are using it in our in our in our um, farm. Um, the same compost. So now I understand what compost is. Um, but it was a fight at the beginning, <laughs> you know, because I, I, that smell. Um, it was a fight for me, but yeah. I'm gonna leave it at that. I don't know if you have any more questions, but yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's get to the to the farm land that you actually own, I guess, in in uh, around Danbury. Uh, mm -hmm. How did uh, you know? How did you come to 
you know, make that move to, to that's a big commitment there. And then what did, what is your plan to do with that land and what are you doing with it so far? Okay. So again, like, um, when we moved to Bethel, um, the pandemic hit, we, as soon as the pandemic hit, we understood, we understood that we needed to be self-sustainable. And after I built her, that community, that garden, uh, that still, they still have the garden, um, the, the old house that we used to live in. We decided after we built our garden and we grew so much food, we didn't have to go to the supermarket for that whole year, that year and a half that we spent looking, um, looking for home for, for, for a farm. Uh, we didn't buy any food because we were growing it out of our garden. And that's when we, you know, the light bulb hit and we said we need a bigger plot. Um, and then we started looking for uh, a bigger land, and then we ended up in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, we have three acres. Um, it's very healy um, uh, uh, acreage, but we're making it work. We grow hemp, which I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hemp enthusiast. Um, I'm pushing hemp um, as much as I can. Um, we grow vegetables. We have goats. We have a little apiary. Um, we do cut flowers. Um, and it's a farmstead, so we first grow for ourselves, and then we grow for the community. Um, we want to um, create a teaching farm um, around the, the 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 need to use hemp uh, as a regenerative crop, so it's going to help um, climate uh, um, climate smart agriculture move forward. Um, so that's that's what we're doing right now. That's the project that we are doing in our in our farm is how to create. Um, an educational center and a farm um, where we're teaching people all all um, ways of um, re- uh, I'm sorry um, generational um, uh, um, knowledge and regenerative agriculture. How we gonna how can we um, um, push that narrative and get people mm-hmm. excited about farming, especially people like me, um, because one of the things that I teach my young people, my young people, um, they don't know that. Farmers look like me. They always think it's white people with plaid. Um, they don't look at uh, a black a black person. I'm a tall guy with dread, you know. So, um, but, you know, that for us, it's like making that move was was a, a way to teach our young people that farmers is not just you know a white person with plaid. It's people that look like us that can do this work as well. Okay, let's let's just put a, put a uh, word out there, uh, white folks. There's other things to wear other than plaid. I think he's thinking of loggers in the Northwest. (laughs) So um, for sure. All right, we got we got we got the word on that. So I just want to mention that this is your farming project is 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 uh, is really quite uh, remarkable. It's happening in the face of the fact that over the course of a hundred years, the amount of black owned farmland has dropped by 90 percent and that there's a Mm -hmm. lot of factors involved there but much of it has to do with just the old Jim Crow uh, kind of process that 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 discriminates against uh, you know black people trying to you know exercise their their pursuit of happiness in this country and a a lot of that played out in the Southlands but uh, you know, when we look around New England, we don't see many black farmers. So we. No, I mean, in Connecticut, in Connecticut, there's only zero point zero one percent of all farmers are black. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> and then in the in the country, only one percent of all farmers 
are are black, and then ninety eight percent of all farmland is owned by white farm um, landowners. Hmm. Well, it's it's great that you acquired that land. Is there a plan f- to have other people, other um, small farming projects, like people that want to have a plot or uh, some of the land to grow their own stuff? Is is that part of your model? Yes, that's that's um, part of the the work that we do right now. We are working with um, people that. Um, that is helping us build the farm. We have a three-year plan. This is our third year. Um, last year was tough for us. You know, we, we got into a few accidents and we didn't do that much farming. Um, but this year we are going to be, we're going to open it up for the community um, so they can come in, help us build the land. They can have a plot. Um, one, of our, one of our good friends um, that, is, that is helping us build the farm, uh, we, we have a um, forest in our farm. We have, you know, a, 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 wet, a little bit of wetlands, too. Um, so we're going to allow him to do some mushrooms in that in that area um, while he's helping us. He's going to grow some some mushrooms for his farm um, uh, in, in our wetlands, uh, because that's a, a, a crop that um, is good for the soil. Um, it's not destructive um, and, and it keeps um, the, the wetlands vital. Um, so we we are opening it up to to people to come in um, and help us build the farm. This is a community farm uh, where we teach, and we just need people to come in and understand that um, farming takes a village, um, and and you know it's open for everybody. And you know we understand that it's in stolen land. You know we farm in um, in uh, Pegasus um, um, native land. Um, when they used to be there, that's where we're farming right now. Um, and we understand that uh, we're not farming in our own land, so we need to open it up. We don't own the land, and that's how the indigenous people live. They, don't, they didn't have that, that concept of ownership. Um, they lived in harmony with the, with the soil, with the earth, and with the community. Um, and that's what we, we are doing in, in, in our farm. Well, we're talking with Hector Geraldo and his uh, farm, Cimarron farmstead in danbury connecticut fantastic story uh hector and uh, we want to hear more so uh questions from uh laura or Chris yes or Steve? i i have one um just a uh, a basic question is there a distinction between hemp and cannabis because you talk about growing so, hemp yes so cannabis is the mother plant and then you have marijuana and then you have hemp um, and marijuana is the one that everybody, you know, the 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 reefer madness, you know, that if you smoke <laughs> it, you get you go crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the marijuana part. The hemp, um, which uh, it was in it was in every part of of uh, early colonial America. It was in every part of 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 creating of the economy of, of America. People used to pay taxes to 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 uh, um, England through hemp, um, they were required to grow an acre of hemp. I mean, a quarter acre of hemp and a quarter acre of flats. So that was like a requirement. Um, if you had land here in the United States, and then you know people after prohibition ended, 
um, you know, uh, uh, they, would, they needed to create a new war. You know, the textile companies was coming out. You know, Harry Ford came out with the, with the hemp car, but then the Rockefeller came out with, you know, drilling for oil, and that's more money for machinery. Um, and that dream of, of creating a hemp car was dead. What is um, it? The textile, does, tell, tell us about the, the hemp car. What, what does that mean? I'm, I'm not... They, that it was gonna it was gonna run on hemp oil, okay. so hemp oil. Um, you can take that hemp oil and put it in your in the hemp seed oil, um, and put it in your car, and you can run your car without drilling for oil. Um, and you can even it's 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 so it's so rich with omega ones, omega with all the omegas that that same oil that you can put in your car, you can ingest it for health. So you know it can work both ways. Um, and you know the textile companies that deforestation, um, the petroleum, um, the people that you know everything that money. You always got to follow the money. The money stop um, the the um, the production of hemp. Uh, and right now we are so far behind the 2018 bill legalized hemp federally, um, and we we so far behind that we are just thinking about CBD, and there's 25,000 different uses for hemp. Um, and we started at the end with CBD, so there's 24,999 <laughs> other uses that we are not using um, uh, that you can create. Hempcrete, you can build, a, uh, you know, hempcrete is insulation made out of hemp herd, um, um, lime, and water. You mix that together, and that's insulation that you can put in your house um, that is... Um, Flame retarded, um, it breathes. So when it's hot, it's cold. When it's cold, it's hot. Um, uh, you can grow it. You don't have to create deforestation. Um, you don't have to create. Um, you don't have to use um, the what is that? The that pink uh, um, insulation that they use. What is the fiberglass? Yeah, fiberglass. That fiberglass. You don't have. It's, it's stronger than fiberglass. You can. Um, you don't have to use fiberglass. You can create um, hand blocks where you can build a whole house. You have. Hmm hemp uh, 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 um, wood that you can compress all the stocks and you can make hemp wood and do finishes for like a chair, a table, a countertop made out of hemp. Um, you have so many uses like this. People that I know um, that are innovating female products, hy hygiene products made out of hemp. Hmm. Um, there's a rebar that they created in Troy, New York, um, a rebar that is stronger than steel, stronger than iron, and it's all made out of hemp. And hmm. hemp um, sequester and the most important thing for farmers is that hemp sequesters carbon back to the soil. So it's 50-50. So it's 50% goes to the soil, 50% stays on the stock. Um, and then it's carbon neutral. Um, and it's, uh, it's, they call it the purifier, the earth purifier. Um, PFADs, anybody that know about PFADs, mm -hmm. um, there's a, there's a, um, a, a research right now that are indigenous um, community with a with a institute. I forget the names, but you can look it up. Um, that they that they are doing some research because hemp um, absorbs the PFADs uh, right straight out of the soil and cleans it out. Those are the um, those so are the a, microplastics, I think, right? Yeah, and uh, the microplastics that are uh, <laughs> they're pretty much everywhere, and they've been determined to be mm -hmm. uh, carcinogenic. I want to get right. uh, yeah. let Steve come in here, Steve. Um, you have any comment on the hemp issue or on anything else that uh, Hector has been talking about? 
Well, the hemp is really exciting. And I think, you know, Freedom is mentioning also, you know, the many uses and the building uses and such. And, and it's an opportunity for growers, for sure. Uh, and one that that I think, you know, Connecticut, the Department of Agriculture it has been working to expand on it and uh, promote. But it's something that we need to be doing more of for, for a lot of reasons, uh, because there are so many uses and it is sustainable. And, and Freedom's right. You know, this is a, a climate smart crop as well. It's one that can be part of, you know, the regenerative agriculture uh, work and movement. So, you know, and, and Freedom has been a leader in that. He gave a workshop last year at our winter conference, actually talking all about it and all the uses. And we had... Uh, and I'm doing one this year, too. <laughs> oh, you are again. That's right. Yeah. So oh, cool. to, another reason to come to the winter conference and hear Freedom talking about hemp, uh, you know, and all the uses and the ways to grow it. Uh, and Winona LeDuc has been another, you know, leader in, in uh, hemp yes. growing. So, uh, you know, she's got some interesting projects going on and, and gave a talk last year. Um, as part of the the online conference, so so there's a lot there. So um, and you know I don't not to take it away from from the hemp discussion, but um, freedom. I know you know as uh, just to sort of bring things back to the the issues facing you know farmers of colors, black farmers and such. I, I know that you know you play a role with the the New Connecticut Farmer Alliance, um, as well as the NOFA board. But the, the New Connecticut Farm Alliance has a, has a policy platform, you know, to address, uh, you know, that's sort of based in, um, you know, racial equity. And I, I want, you know, and also I know you're involved with the, the National Young Farmer Coalition and mm-hmm. the, the Place Fellowship. So I, I just wanted to open it up if you wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the, the policy platform, you know, and, and the fellowship that you're doing with the, the National Young Farmer Coalition. Yeah, I mean, and before I even before I even talk about that, like um, we, Cimarron and Yukon, um, we created and talking about, you know, opportunities for BIPOC um, communities. Um, I don't know if people know, but there's only one conservation specialist in Connecticut, and his name is Kip. Every farmer knows who Kip is because he's the only one, the soil specialist of Connecticut. Yep, yep. Um, so... So Yukon and I, um, Yukon and our organization, my wife and I, because it's not just me, um, my wife is the, is the head of the farm, you know, I follow her. Um, so um, the two of us, we are working with Yukon and we created um, the, the um, leaders, in co- leaders of Color in Conservations. So it's a, a five-month program um, where we're going to teach a, a cohort of eight students or eight participants um, how to be conservation specialists. Um, and it's a stipend um, included to to it. Uh, we have the application out right now. Um, is 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 um, is due on the third March third, um, and we are looking for people um, people of color that wants to get into that business of conservation and teaching farmers, you know, different practices that they can use on their farms. For me, um, and people of color, especially people that work um, that do urban farming. Uh, we don't get those type of we don't get that type of services. And if we don't ask, if we don't like do the research um, and really about it, we don't get those type of services. So we want to create a way to um, to empower uh, a people uh, of color to do this type of work. Um, so um, that's one project that we are doing. Um, and then we are part of I'm, I'm part of the NICFA um, um, steering committee and we have a platform which I'm, you know, I'm going to read a little bit the the five, the four um, objective of our of our platform. Um, give me one second. Uh, okay. Uh, 
So give me one second. Sorry about that. Uh, so our policy is um, it's the foundation. It's, it's a foundation in, in, in racial justice. Um, what, the, the number one thing that we are fighting for is in, to improve the economic viability of farming. Um, number two, making farmland more accessible. Number three, improve agriculture and infrastructure and CT. Um, confront climate change and build climate re- resiliency. Um, and increase access to affordable health care for farmers. Um, I'm, I'm big on affordable health care. Um, I'm a union guy, and I organize um, non-union workers in the farm. Um, those, those farm workers that, you know, nobody talks about. And I understand that those farm workers um, are getting the, the short end of the stick, um, and they need some health insurance. You know, there's a lot of problems that go into farming. You know, you farmers, you guys know, um, you know, back problems and, you know, uh, um, whatever stress that you have um, and, and people don't have um, health insurance. Um, so that's the platform that we are fighting for um, as, as, as new and beginner farmers of Connecticut uh, because it's important for us to make sure um, that um, new beginning farmers um, don't get uh, what we got when we started. Um, because when I started farming, I did it all out of a, you know, I learned on my own. I didn't, I didn't have a, a mentor. I didn't have anything. I did it on my own. We want to make sure that we create a mentorship program, um, um, place mentorship um, services for new and beginning farmers. And this is part of it. Wonderful. Um, I'm, yeah. Let's, let's just uh, stop, pause there for a second. So uh, uh, freedom Hector, can you give out your mm-hmm. uh, contact information? So if you want to reach me, um, you can reach us in, in, on Instagram, Cimarron uh, Farmstead. So it's S-E-A-R-R-O-N. No, S-E-A-M-A-R-R-O-N. Cimarron Farmstead um, on Instagram. Uh, and that's, you know, everywhere on social media you can find us there and that's the best way to actually reach out to us because we check that every day yeah and i i just did a google search for cimarron farms farmstead and it came up with a page it wasn't i don't think it was your website per se but it had a lot of information about your farming project and i think it actually had some ways that farmers Perspective farmers could get uh, could get in touch with yeah. you to propose uh, projects on your land. This is a wonderful yeah. idea, fantastic uh, stuff that's happening there. Uh, Laura Modlin, uh, one of our co-hosts, has a, a question for you. Hi, Freedom. Um, I, I'm sorry. I wanted to go back to the the subject of hemp because um, I'm just really curious. I know that a lot of people started using it for um, CBD oil and other uses when it became you know, legal in Connecticut. But now that that marijuana is legal, how do you think this is affecting hemp? Um, I think that it's not affecting it. I think that it's like cause, because this industry of that I'm in, the industry of cannabis, um, is so um, uh, it's full of like people like me don't have a chance when it comes to marijuana, right? Like people, there's only 56 licenses in Connecticut, um, and the marijuana business. If you don't have the big bucks, it's hard for you to make it. Um, it's not that it's, that you won't that you can, you know. Uh, uh, open a, a business, but it's hard to compete with people that have millions of dollars to spend. 
Um, and for me, the way for black and brown people to really have an impact, not just um, uh, for climate, but to have um, gener- to create generational wealth is to get into the hemp business in the processing. Whoever controls the means of production controls um, um, the world. Right. So there's no means of production right now of hemp. Um, and we need to build that, especially in the East Coast. And that's my my goal as a farmer is to build that on um, the the means of production um, of hemp uh, because we need it. And that's how we're going to create new jobs, green jobs. That's how we're going to be able to create that generational wealth if we get into the business now, um, because in five years, the hemp industry is going to take off. One thing that I wanted to that I want to mention one quick uh, um, um, fact is that the USDA um, back in World War II, they had a full campaign to to push hemp forward because they wanted farmers to grow um, hemp to build materials for ships, um, for the warships, for, you know, bales and canvases. So there was the uh, USDA, they even have a video, I just watched it yesterday, they, had a vi- they have a video about why the farmers should grow hemp. And I don't understand if they had that that push. They had a whole campaign. Um, they they are waiting so long to help farmers um, to to get into that business and not push the CBD so much. Hector, how, how will that work on your land? Will you, how much of your acreage would you or are you already using to grow hemp? Um, we're using a quarter acre right now to grow hemp. And so, how, what does that produce? And what do you do with the, uh, the with the hemp when it's after when it's harvested so this is our second year and we both and in both years we grew for for cbd this is going to be the first year we're going to grow for um for uh um biomass you know um for textiles and fiber um and last year we grew for for cbd so we we grew for some flour um, and we grew some, um, and we processed it and made some CBD oils. Um, but we only grew a hundred, um, about 85 plants, um, and that yielded about um, 50 pounds. Um, and you know, it was it was hard for us to sell it because um, it's declining. Like people in 2018, everybody was was super hyper about CBD and. The market was was super high, and now everything is is down. It's four hundred dollars for a pound of of hemp um, as a grower, but if you grow a pound of marijuana, you can get about eighteen eighteen hundred twenty five hundred dollars. So farmers are moving away from hemp, and mm. you know, and moving and and going into marijuana and moving away from hemp completely in Connecticut because a lot of farmers that I have talked to don't see the economic viability of hemp right now. Is there a, is there a viability that they just don't perceive? And what, what do you, how do you plan to market the, uh, the non-CBD part of the operation? Where's that, who, do you so, sell, who do you sell it to? So I'm getting a lot of questions from farmers that uh, want to do, that want to do um, regenerative feeding or organic feeding for their, for their, for their livestock. Um, so Connecticut is big on livestock. Um, so animal feed. Mm. Uh, and you can feed animals out of hemp. Um, so now that's, that's, some of the, that's some of the work that we're going to be doing is how we're going to transform our hemp for animal feed and for hemp creek. Um, and I see the viability for us as farmers is in, in the hemp creek because last year the, um, the building codes for the United States 
um, changed to include um, hempcrete um, for residential buildings. What is hemp? Um, what is a lot of people, oh, hempcrete? Is that what you're saying? So it's yeah. an actual. That's when you said transforming the hemp into actual building material. Yes. Is that what it is? So it's like a. a no. Of, so hempcrete is an actual material that you can build that you can put in your house. That's insulation. Okay. So right. hempcrete is a it's a it's an insulation that you create with with lime, water, and hemp herd. You mix that together, and you get hempcrete, and that you can use that for insulation in your house. Okay, Laura. Um, yeah, hi, Freedom. I you're talking about different uses for hemp than CBD, and I know that hemp is great for insulation. I think people use it for clothes sometimes but mm -hmm. I yes. yeah and and it's it's long lasting and durable but my understanding is that it's expensive for these other uses and um how do you overcome that i mean right now there's a hemp movement um so there's you know there's a, a lot of companies moving towards hemp patagonia they have a whole hemp line um i know levi's is going towards it um, um they, they doing hemp clothing um i know bmw have uh created hemp lining inside their one of their cars um and some of their some of the 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 material that they use for the car um are made out of hemp so we know that there's a there, there is a need for hemp and people are asking for it but Who's going to control, again, who's going to control the means of production? Because it takes a million dollars to get a line um, to process hemp. At the cornicated line, that's what you need. Is That's what is called the cornication. Um, at the cornicated line um, can run you a million dollars, and there's no um, companies building those machines here in the United States. If you want to get them, you got to go outside of the country. Um, you got to buy those machineries outside of the country um, to be able to process it. So for me, is how can we start educating farmers and educating um, consumers and, and the community about hemp, um, um, fundraise some money, create in, in Connecticut, create a, a, a center place where people, all farmers can bring their, their, their hemp and get it processed and get paid and get contracts with Patagonia, get contracts with whoever, um, create some type of cooperative. Um, that we gonna that we can sell our products because that's the only way for hemp to be viable is for us to process it because the market is gonna be there as soon as the processing line opens up. All right, Hector Geraldo Freedom, based in uh, Danbury, Connecticut, his Cimarron Farmstead is uh, a project we all need to know about. Go online, search for Cimarron, S-E-A-M-A-R-R-O-N Farmstead. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, Hector, or they can also send me an email at cimarronfarms at gmail.com. Oh, wonderful. Great, great idea. All right. Great uh, chat with you today. We'll do it again. Uh, Laura Modlin, thank you so much. Chris Ferrio, great. Thank and, uh, of course, Steve, you, Steve. Steve Munno on Masaro Farm. Thank you, Steve. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. The trees of Los Angeles can let out a deep breath of fresh oxygen after a recent court ruling halted the city of L.A.'s plan to chop down as many as 13,000 shade trees citywide in the name of sidewalk repairs. A judge's ruling grants trees a temporary reprieve from the chopping block, saying the city's environmental impact report failed to thoroughly examine the impacts to wildlife and the environmental consequences of trading mature trees for young replacement trees. Advocates say it's a good thing for residents, too. The presence of trees in a neighborhood helps cool the temperature, lower electricity bills, clean the air, increase biodiversity, and has even been shown to reduce crime. Health and environmental concerns are mounting in East Palestine, Ohio, after several derailed train cars released toxic fumes last week. On February 3rd, about 50 cars of a Norfolk Southern train went off track in Ohio, causing a days-long fire in the area. Ten of the 50 derailed cars contained hazardous chemicals, including combustible liquids, that authorities feared could set off a major explosion. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources said the chemical spill resulting from the derailment had killed an estimated 3,500 small fish across seven and a half miles of streams. According to a recent report from the U.S. Forest Service, an estimated 36.3 million trees died in California in 2022, primarily because of drought, high temperatures, insects, disease, and overcrowded forests. An aerial detection survey conducted from July 18th to October 7th last year looked at 39.6 million acres of land and found that 2.6 million acres contained dead trees. According to scientists with the Ocean Conservancy, half of the plastic pollution in existence today has been produced in the last 20 years. The Conservancy said 99% of our plastics are made from fossil fuels, so we can easily think of plastics as just oil in another form. Sri Lanka will ban single-use plastics, the government said on Tuesday, in a move that follows a series of wild elephant and deer deaths from plastic poisoning. A cabinet spokesman for the government said the manufacture or sale of plastic cutlery, cocktail shakers, and artificial flowers will be prohibited from June onward. Non-biodegradable plastic bags were banned in 2017 due to concerns over flash floods. According to data from the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service, Europe has experienced an exceptionally warm January, with average temperatures 2.2 degrees hotter than the 1990-2020 average. The month started with record-breaking heat waves, as New Year's Day saw an alarming number of heat records fall across the continent, with at least eight countries experiencing their warmest-ever January day. The climatologist Maximiano Herrera, who tracks extreme temperatures across the globe, told CNN at the time that it was the most severe heat wave in European history. According to the publication Monga Bay, the U.S. government has denied two petitions to immediately protect critically endangered North Atlantic right whales, raising concerns that this population of whales will continue to decline without intervention. There are currently about 340 of these whales left, making them one of the most threatened species in the world.
And finally, as reported by the magazine Electric, Switzerland's longest dam, also the highest dam in Europe, has now been adorned with nearly 5,000 solar panels. The added solar panels help provide additional energy, particularly during the winter months. The 2.2-megawatt project, called Alpine Solar, will provide about 3.3 million kilowatt-hours of electricity per year to power the equivalent of 700 households. This was the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. Hi, I'm Lydia Loveless, and you're listening to WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming at WPKN.org.